Welcome back to another episode. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Lauren. And this is A Place in the Courtroom. Welcome back to another special episode for Women's History Month. Today we are pleased to have Rima Church uh, here with us. And we are so excited to hear everything that you have to share with our listeners. Um, I can't imagine why you would be excited, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I think to us, we're still excited for, to learn from any trial attorney, Hmm. especially a woman in our area. That's huge. I I do get that. Yeah. Okay. So do you, do you want to walk through and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Okay, so my name is Raymond Church. I've been an attorney since 1991, I think. It's hard to remember, but um, I've done both plaintiff and defense work, although I primarily have done uh, defense work. Uh, I've had a plaintiff's attorney accuse me of being secretly a plaintiff's lawyer, so I guess I'm fairly uh, neutrally oriented. Um, I grew up in... I was born in Madeira. I grew up in Hanford. Um, I was the first paralegal in Kings County in 1977. Um, Then I went back to uh, college. I went to Fresno State at night, working the whole time in law firms. And then I went to San Joaquin College of Law again at night, continuing to work full time. So by the time I graduated from law school, I'd been working in law firms for well over 10 years. And uh, I started working for a local plaintiff's firm, which was then called Perez, Williams, and Medina. Um, Pardon me, Perez, Williams, McCasion, and Medina. And then I moved on to other jobs and... uh, went to work for what was originally Emerson and Rolegi, and we went through about, I don't know, 25 different name changes. <laughs> um, and I am currently the owner of the Church Law Group. Okay. Which is a descendant of Emerson and Rolegi. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing with that, uh, or sharing your background. So the next thing that we wanted to ask you is, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you've faced in your career so far? Um, The balancing act between standing up, this is what I call it, standing up and screwing up. Um, Standing up is where you stand up to do the right thing and it's not always popular it's not always safe for your career or for other things. But um, there have been times in my career when I've reached that point, And sometimes it was very dicey and sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't. <laughs> I, I can't say that I always stood up, but there were a couple memorable times when I did. And ultimately, I think... It took a while for the stars to align, but it, but it did. So I, I was fortunate in that. So that's been, 
you know, it can be little things. It can be little things like saying to somebody, I, I'm not going to let you be rude to the witness. That's easy, actually, for me to do. It's easier for me to stand up for somebody else than it is to stand up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's a big deal. You know, um, I once learned that my uh, male counterpart in the firm was being paid 40% more than I was. And I had more trial experience. Wow. So that was a, that could have been really dicey. <laughs> I did stand up and I, it, and it worked out. Okay. But um, I had to make a decision very quickly. So, you know, um, there's just a, some of them are little, some of them are big, but it happens as you go along in a career. And I, I, it's not just with women, it's for all kinds of things, but you have to always be making a decision. Is this, you're kind of triaging. Do I, do I really need to stand up and kind of say, no, I'm not going to do that or, or no, we have to do this. Or is this one that you can not create waves on? So that was, I think that was always been a big challenge for me. And I, I think most of the time I made the right decision. Not always easy, but yeah, it, it, it ultimately worked out. That's what I'm going to say. And that's a that's a great point that you make about it being easier to stand up for someone else than it is for yourself, because I think that's something that it, there's a certain level of advocacy, I think, that you're born with when you have this desire to go to law school. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that that's been something that I've noticed within myself as well, that sometimes, you know, I will no doubt stick up for other people. But there have been times, I think, where admittedly, I haven't been brave enough to stand up for myself in certain circumstances. So that's I'm glad that you highlighted that. I think traditionally women were taught to go along and 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 get along, right? And um, certainly socially, women were taught to blend in and make other people comfortable, and you know, not make people uncomfortable. And so, um, you have to learn at times to be your own advocate, and that sometimes doesn't play well with the traditional upbringing. Um, I was raised in a family of boys by parents who didn't seem to know the difference. So I, I did have a little help there. <laughs> um, I, I didn't have that, you know, I, I told my mother when I was five, I wasn't going to have kids. And by the time I was 10, she believed me. So I, I didn't have a lot of traditional stuff about my role in life. So that helped. Um, getting into verbal arguments with my one of my older brothers on a regular basis was really good training for not having a thin skin. You know, that just, uh, there were some things in life that prepared me to be a lawyer. <laughs> That's, that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. So, um, you know, I've, I've certainly learned from a lot of other people on uh, better ways to handle 
some things. I mean, and I kind of take notes when I see somebody do something really cool. I'm like, oh, note to self, remember to do it like that. That's that's a really classy way of doing that. You know, I'm just a little ditch bank oaky and I didn't come with those sophisticated skills. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, it, I've certainly learned uh, a, a lot of ways to approach that. And it's, you know, it has to fit. I always say when you're a lawyer, everybody's given a tool belt, but, you know, I can't use a sledgehammer, but I'm really good with a surgical knife, okay? Um, so you you have to use the tools that you have. Um, so, you know, what will work for one person won't necessarily work for me. But I steal from the best, you know, if I like something they do. Have you had to, you know, as you're watching other people and, and learning from them or through your own experiences, had to tailor how you do something because of how it would come off to a jury or to someone else because you're a woman versus, you know, I think the classic example is men can always get get angry or mad in a courtroom yeah. and it's fine until a woman does it and then we're, we're being a bitch. Yes, uh, that's very true. Ab that is absolutely true. So um, I had a, a trial once where the I was defense counsel and the plaintiff was, well, I, she mentally was not right in, in some respect. You know, she was a little bit of a nutcase. Very attractive lady, very nice, but a little bit of a nutcase. And she was testifying on the stand. And at one point, I realized that she was just off the rails, you know, and I kind of went, okay, so I'm going to just be done with you. Because there was no point in it, in examining her on some issues. And it was really kind of funny, because after the trial was over, one of the jurors, it was a a young Hispanic man came up to me and he said, oh my God, we were so relieved when you didn't question her about that. And I'm like, why? And he goes, oh, well, we thought, you know, oh, it's going to be bloodshed. And then you were really nice to her and we were all, we were really relieved that you did that. And I went, it was really funny, their perception that I was just going to tear this woman apart. But I thought, it's not going to advance the defense. So I'm just going to let it go. And, and, and fortunately they got it, you know, um, it, you do, when you're do trial work, you have to make decisions on your feet. Right. And you just kind of have to gauge the feeling in the room. And I, there is a tension of some, and sometimes it's not tension, sometimes it's something else in the room, but you can feel it when you're there, which is why I say, well, like, I don't know how many decades ago this was that uh, Michael Jackson was on trial and they, they publicized it, right? They filmed it and people were so shocked at the end. And I said, even though they watched it and I said, you weren't in the room. You have to be in the room to feel what the jury is feeling. And you can't get that on court TV, you know. Um, so I don't know that I was or was not surprised by the verdict. I don't even remember anything. I didn't watch it because I was working, you know. But um, 
I tell people that you have to be in the room. It's one of the reasons why I don't really like Zoom depositions because you don't get the feel for what's going on. I love them in the sense that I no longer have to travel to Bakersfield for a 30 minute depot, but <laughs> you know, you know, there, there's a, there's a give and take on that. Um, so you, you kind of have to develop this instinct for, have I done enough or do I, I don't want to go too far. <clears throat> I once had a, a federal judge, uh, we had some subrosa. Never in my life have I had good subrosa. And what happened was one of the other defendants settled out the day before trial started, and it had had great subrosa. I hadn't seen it till after we actually started trial because my paralegal was the one that remembered they had it. And so she called them up and they sent it to us, and we're like, oh my gosh, this stuff is golden. But in federal court, you have to disclose even. Uh, impeachment evidence as part of the pretrial conference and that hadn't happened. So the judge is like, no, that's not coming in. And I'm like, dang it, you know? It's really unhappy. It's the only time I'd ever seen really good suppressor. So then we go along about two days in trial and all of a sudden the judge says, you know, I'm kind of getting the impression here that maybe somebody wasn't entirely truthful in their testimony here and I might reconsider that decision about the subversive evidence. And I'm like doing the happy dance over in the corner, you know. But, but that was the judge feeling it and going, well, wait a minute. You know, this is supposed to be a search for the truth or whatever. And I'm not getting the sense that we got the truth going on here. And ultimately, we didn't have to show it because he gave them the opportunity to backpedal. And they backpedaled sufficiently into a hole. So it was fine. But it's not just the lawyers that get the feeling, right? So that's what I, 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 I have changed the way I do things because of that feeling. I've changed the way because I'm female. I've said things to people because I think that they are treating somebody differently or me differently. Not very often with me because uh, I, 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 I don't have that kind of personality where people are really worried about offending me or treating me like a little girl. They don't do that. They've never done that. Um, my young associates have reported to me things. And I, I will tell you honestly, I mean, we've all had mansplaining done to us. It doesn't play well with me. But... Um, when my associates tell me that, I kind of look at it and I'm like, well, truthfully, sometimes it's less about your gender and more about your age. Um, recently, I have an associate, she is no wallflower. She's a very strong personality. But a, another attorney of my uh, age bracket and experience level, she called him on the phone and he was a little late uh, getting some information and and she asked him a question about it and he kind of blew up on her and she's like, whoa, whoa, you know. So she was telling me about this and I said, yeah, he would never have done that to me. And she goes, I know that, <laughs> you know. And it's, so that tells you it's not my gender. It's not the gender. It's the experience level. 
Now, he's, he's now burned himself with her. And it's going to take him a while to dig out of that because he was, it was inappropriate. Okay. And that's Fresno. This is a small community. You make a mistake or you create an impression about how you treat people. And it, and if you get in the hole, it's going to be a long time before you're out of the hole. So, right. you know, that's, that's, that's the way it is here. Fortunately, because, you know, you go south of the grapevine, it's not like that. There's no, no reputation. I right. I prefer ours where we generally know the other attorney's reputation or we've, I've had cases, you know, multiple times with the same, sure. same opposing counsel. Or you see each other at bar events or, or something mm -hmm. um, where if they're nasty, that reputation is going to spread. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, think I'm on safe territory when I say there's in my life there's been one or two lawyers in town where every other firm will say yeah we don't talk to them on the phone you know it has to be in it has to be in writing that's really unfortunate but that's the reality I I know one time I uh, was talking at a case for the first time with a member of a large firm and he was like, oh, you're just, you know, you're trying to set me up for this or that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't act like that. I said, so um, you need to call so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so in your firm because they'll tell you that's not what's going on here. Because I don't, I'm pretty blunt. And if I, I I'm going to call it the way I see it. And you, I don't play games like that. <laughs> And and, he, and and then he did, and, and things kind of got ironed out, you know. I think that brings up an important point that I don't know why there's kind of this perception that to be successful as an advocate, you have to be mean. That you can be a good person mm -hmm. and a good advocate, and arguably that will get you a lot further in terms of the relationships that you make with other people in the legal field and just the reputation that you create for yourself. The older you get, the more you know that's true. Because, you know, if, if you have a long list of people that you have insulted or been rude to, uh, you know, after a while, the, the scales are tilted against you there. Um, there is an attorney in this town that everybody talks about with respect, and he is the most professional, nice person. That's Larry Waite in McCormick's office. You know, obviously a very good advocate, but always the complete professional in terms of how he dealt with people. Um, years ago, I had an employment case. Um, well, it wasn't really employment. It was a sexual harassment case. And my client was <clears throat> very emotionally distressed. And she's being deposed by this lawyer from Los Angeles. And at one point, she She's getting tearful, and I'm like, oh, God, I can't stand it when they cry, you know. And um, I was like, there's a no crying rule here. There's no crying in baseball, and there's no crying in depositions. Please stop. You know? And um, he says, she says, it's okay. Go ahead. And he goes, no, no. He goes, that's not fair to you or to me. He says, you can't think and testify when you're crying. And I sat there, and I went, Oh wow, I really like that. That's that's now that's one of my things at a depot. Somebody starts to cry. I'm like, okay, I have a rule. We're going to stop now, because 
you can't give me good information when you're crying and that's not fair to either one of us, you know? And when I've done that now, uh, the plaintiff's lawyer, which is usually who's on the opposite side of me, is like, really? And I'm like, yeah, you know? And that changes the whole tenor of things. Um, Peding, I find my, everybody has a different kind of tactic for depositions and mine is to be nice because when people are upset and, and you're accusatory or you're rough with them, they tend to clam up and that's not my goal in a deposition. I want you to talk to me. So I'm, I'm very nice. I told my clients, oh, no, no, he's going to be nice to you. He's gonna, it's not a conversation. Don't talk. <laughs> you know? But the reality is when, when you are mean to people, they withdraw, you know, um, and, and, and that's not helpful to me. So I'm, I'm nicer in a deposition than I ever am in person. <laughs> not really right. that nice of a person. <laughs> I, I do the same thing in depositions and I've learned, um, particularly if we're on a large case and it has some sort of construction or some sort of, of technical, right. They built a roadway, something like that. Generally it is an older man that I am deposing that's done the construction or whatever. They don't think I know what, what had to happen. (laughs) And I don't let them on that I know because majority of the time, if I'm really nice, they're like, oh, I can teach her. And they just start talking. And I'm like, I'm not going to correct you that I know exactly what you're talking about, but okay, go ahead and teach me. And I just sit there and listen and they'll just keep talking. And a lot of the times their counsel's like, Shh, like, just wait for the question. And they're like, but I, but I need to say something. I'm like, great. Were you finished? And they'll just keep going. I'm like, well, it okay. works. Yeah, that's okay. right. It, it works. Okay. You know, um, gold that way. Now, you know, some people have different styles. I've I've seen the berating, you know, offensive uh, type, and I've always thought you're leaving information on the table. You know, there there is a theory. I I recognize some people they come in and they want to force the witness to this, right? This is all they're interested in, and they do that. And I think, well, okay, you know that. It hurt that you got that done, but I think there's things you don't know. And, you know, if you'd conducted a discovery deposition, you might have learned things that would cause you to be better prepared, (laughs) you know, but that's their choice. And, and I couldn't, I don't think I could do that because it's not my style. It's not my personality. So, you know, you, everybody has to make those choices, not just women. Right. Yeah. Oh, no, we've we've had opposing counsel come in before and depose our client, who's always a plaintiff, um, you know, as you know, mm-hmm. that and they're just super aggressive. And our listeners have already heard about one particular person that I had where um, he just started talking bad about Fresno. I don't know who could live here. And I'm like, okay, well, the witness lives here. I live here. Your court reporter lives here. Your videographer lives here. So now you have an entire room full of people that want you to go back to LA. <laughs> and stay. <laughs> and stay. Right. Please don't come back. 
Uh, but he was so aggressive. And by the end of it, my client was so frustrated. It was just yes or no answers. And I'm like, you, if you're nicer, you can get a lot farther and get a lot more information. I mean, I don't care if he's getting short answers because that's his problem, not mine, but it doesn't <laughs> yes. do you any good. I, I had a case. Um, it was a really ugly case in the sense of what happened to this woman was it what happened to this woman was not done by my client it was really really bad and Renee Sample was her lawyer and you know I I get all this information about this case and I'm like oh my god this is so bad it was awful I um I was prepared to like her. I certainly felt terrible about what happened to her. And then I get there and she blames the entire world for everything that ever went wrong in her life, even way before this incident, you know? And so it wasn't long before I didn't like her. And, <laughs> and she, but she was resistant to questions from the get-go. Like, I've only had one case where somebody turned on me faster like as soon as she we asked her her name that was a weird one but anyway um Renee said it was very clear that we did not like each other <laughs> she, she told me that she says but we were I was never rude you know uh, I was uh, I was always trying to be nice trying to get her to relax and talk to me I, I just didn't realize that her entire way of communicating with the entire world was to blame everybody for everything. So, okay. I don't, not really agreeing with that, but at the settlement conference, when we walked by each other in the hallway, I smiled at her. Well, what? I'm not going to spit or snarl, you know? Well, Renee tells me, she goes, well, that was enough. To, she thinks you were being nice to her. So she was willing to settle this case, which was, which was great because my client didn't have any money. But Renee told me once, she goes, more defense lawyers need to understand that when you are nice to my client, it makes them less resistant to settle with you. Because she knows I'm always nice to her client. So she goes, more of them should realize that. You know, because they don't want to punish me if I've been nice to them. You know, I'm, I'm doing a job. They know that I, you don't have to be rude to people. I, and, you know, we've all run into people we don't like. Renee's client on that one was one of them. But <laughs> <laughs> and even, you know. Sometimes that happens. Well, but I will say it was a terrible, terrible, one of the worst cases mm. I've ever seen. So, you know, it was just a terrible thing. Right. And we, I'm always... Nobody's in my office unless a bad thing has happened, okay? Either to them or to somebody else. And certainly in litigation, something bad has happened. It, sometimes it's really, truly tragic and, and t a terrible, terrible thing. And sometimes it's not nearly as bad as everybody makes it out to be. But okay, you know, that's all right. It's the attorney's full employment act. What can I say? <laughs> exactly. That's the whole point of litigation, trying to figure out how bad it actually is. Well, yeah, you know, um, there is no single truth. 
There really isn't. I mean, at because people's reactions and their perceptions, it, it, it all it all factors in. So, uh, do we ever get to the truth? No, we never get to the truth. You know, we get to the arena, <laughs> the arena it was in, maybe. Right. You know. No, we have clients that'll come in and tell us, you know, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And then you look at the medical and it's, you know, it's maybe not. <laughs> you, you get the sense that they're dying from their injuries, pretty much like that. That's what they think. That's their perception of it is it's horrible. I'm dying. I can't do anything. And then you have clients who really are, you know, severely injured hospital or a year and they're like yeah okay like sometimes they're the easiest clients and it's like no you're the one that that can sit there and be dramatic about your injuries because you're not being dramatic it's just the truth but and I think that's kind of the the fine line to walk that there is this human aspect of practicing law that you really can't get around and so you as an attorney and as an advocate you kind of have to walk the line between like you know your feelings are valid and this may be the very worst thing that has ever happened to you mm-hmm. but also kind of helping them to set the expectation of like you know just because this is the worst thing that has happened to you does not mean that this is going to be an open and shut case and you kind of yeah. have to walk that delicate balance of showing them that like just because I may not be able to get you what you think you are mm-hmm. entitled to it doesn't mean that I'm not giving you the best advocacy that I can so that's kind of like that that human element that you sort of have to wrestle with yes and um my staff used to say you always make your clients cry and I'm like uh. <laughs> you know? because I would yell at them because they I'd ask the question and they would give me a stupid answer and I'm like is that what I asked you? No, that isn't what I asked you. Would you listen to what I'm getting? I, they're talking to me, the one they're supposed to be able to trust, and they're giving me malarkey. And I'm just like, no, no, no. This is not the way this works. And I'm very big on facing reality. <laughs> yeah. And so I've had a lot of tough conversations with clients. That said, I can do that with them and still feel like, I know, I know. You know, it's not your fault or you were, it was a bad situation or, you know, I, I, you try to re in my line of work, I don't pick my clients, right? They just kind of get assigned to me and sometimes they're great people and sometimes not so much, you know, and so you, I have to deal with that. So you kind of have to find a way to communicate with them to get them to trust me or at least communicate with me, you know? And so that sometimes takes work. Sometimes I have to become a whole different person for the amount of time that I have to converse with them. You know, it's, and some people I deal with better than others. Um, I, that, I think that's true for all of us, but it it is something that you have to learn to communicate with a client to get them to trust you because you are representing their interest. And then you have to communicate with a box of 12 to 16 strangers to convince them. I I don't really don't like to say the word convince. I really feel like I communicate to the jury that I'm going to give you this information and you're going to trust me to give you good information and then I'm going to trust you to make the right decision. I I really don't like 
it's not my style to tell them the conclusion to reach. It's my style to tell them, well, you got this piece of information and this piece of information, and what, that looks like a path to me. And you guys are going to have to make that decision, you know, this and that. Because I kind of don't like to be told what to think myself. <laughs> I like to be treated like I have enough intelligence to reach a good decision, right? If you just give me, give me the facts, ma'am. So I tend to be that way with jury. That's my style. Yeah, Everybody's got a different way of doing it. But um, I think treating people with respect and, and like they have intelligence, treating them like they have intelligence will get you a long ways. So when you mansplain to me, that's not working. <laughs> no. I don't think it ever works. <laughs> All of a sudden, even if they're right, I suddenly have a desire to find a reason why they're not. Yes. You know? Oh, yeah. Same. No, I, you know, my sense of humor is, as you might can tell, is never very far away. And, and it tends to go to sarcasm really quickly. And so I'll say things like, really, you know, I don't think that would ever have occurred to me. You know, and mm, um, they get slapped around a little, you know, I just can't help myself. <laughs> I already said I'm not a good person, so, you know. <laughs> I think they need that to learn. <laughs> yeah. When I was, I think I was a freshman in high school, and my dad told me that when I was in fourth grade, he overheard one of my brothers who was then on his way to college. He was working for my dad, and uh, he was in a conversation with one of my dad's employees. They're doing manual labor. This isn't, you know, this is a cotton gin. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you don't ever want to get into an argument with my sister because, trust me, she's going to beat you. <laughs> and, I'm, and, of course, my dad waits, you know, like six years to tell me this. He would have been really helpful if he told me that when I was in fourth grade because my brother <laughs> and I had some really doozy arguments. But um, uh, that... Uh, being willing to argue with somebody <laughs> came early, you know. It was yeah. a matter of survival with three older brothers, but. Yeah, when I was a little kid, um, my biological father, he also liked to argue, probably where I got a lot of it. And he's like, you'd argue that the walls are white. And I'm like, they're not, they're eggshell. And he did <laughs> not appreciate that. That definitely, I sat in time out for quite a long time over that. I'm like, well, I'm technically right. They're not white. <laughs> Well, so I was uh, like four and I'm sitting in the back seat behind my dad and family's in the car. It's daytime and we're going somewhere. And it was one of those days when the moon is out during the daytime. And I said, look, there's two suns. And my dad says, no, that's, that's, that's the moon. And I said, no, it's the sun. And because in my mind, if it's out in the daytime, it's the sun, right? And he goes, no, Rama, I'm telling you, it's the moon. <laughs> my mom was sitting, oddly enough, in the back seat next to me. And she said, I went, well, I call it the moon. <laughs> I mean, I call it the sun. And so that became kind of a a family legend of whenever I was really sticking to my point, somebody would say, well, she calls it the sun. <laughs> <You know? So. laughs> 
Uh, it might have been genetic. I don't know. <laughs> I I think most most people who go to law school have been cast into that role at some point mm -hmm. in their life. Even though you know most people don't go into litigation; they go into transactional or family law or you know something else. So that, but we apparently are predestined for that. I'm willing to give you an argument. Uh, mode. I don't think I'm argumentative at home, and unless um, I ask a question and he decides to be non-responsive, <laughs> I'm like, "That isn't yeah. what I asked you." <laughs> you know? Like, thank you for that, but bringing you back to my question. Uh -huh. right. Yeah. Okay. You're polite. See, I'm I'm not. Uh. <laughs> yeah. In in high school, I had an argument with my mom, and I mean, it's those teenage years where you fight over every little thing. Um, and I guess I started cross-examining her. <laughs> and finally she's yeah. like, stop cross-examining me. I'm like, I've, oh, I've sorry. Well, didn't didn't well, know I did that. Well, good for you that you knew how, because, you know, most people don't. I don't think, you know. I, I did it to the Dell um, the Dell people my freshman year of college too, because my battery was dead. And I was like, how is it not part of the warranty? And we went round and round with their logic. <laughs> and finally they're like, I'm going to transfer you to a manager. And I'm like, all right. Went just get me straight to your counsel, please. Exactly. <laughs> Let's just go there. Let's yeah. just go there. Yeah. For Christmas this year, my mom got me a t-shirt that said, I don't argue. I just explain why I'm right. And I think that kind of so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, what's yeah. wrong exactly. with that? That's all That's it is. Right. It's not arguing. It's, you know, I have, I have arrived to a logical conclusion that has, you know, really well supported evidence behind it. So. Mm -hmm. Well, when people say, oh, you just went your own way. I'm like, doesn't everybody? I mean, right. seriously. Yeah. Don't we all want to? Yeah, I right. I think everybody does. <laughs> I'm like, I tell, show me the person that doesn't want their own way. Cause I think they're not communicating well. <laughs> exactly. Right. So you've talked a lot about uh, some of the challenges of your career. What would you say has been the most rewarding parts? The the people that I there's there, there's kind of two parts to this. The people that I work with, my coworkers. Um, I've been really fortunate with the people I work with. You know, I call them my work family because I spend more time with them than I do with anybody else. Um, and I've been really fortunate. They've been, I've always been treated really well, particularly by staff, you know. I, I was staff, right? So when, when I became a lawyer, women lawyers had a very bad rap for being terrible with staff. And I, never worked for a woman lawyer, so I didn't know. It's just what every law office staff person would tell me. And I thought, well, that's not going to be me because I've been staff and I don't believe in being abusive to people. And um, at one point, uh, when I first went to work for Emerson, I'd been there like three or four months and one of the paralegals I was in her office for something. She goes, I, okay, I have to apologize to you. And I'm like, for what? <laughs> she goes, well, when 
when Jim said you were coming over, she said, oh, don't hire her. She's such a bitch. <laughs> and I'm like, she goes, well, you know, you used to write those letters because I was working for a place firm and I would write the meet and confer letters on the discovery that they weren't answering, right? Right. And I tended to be pretty blunt in those letters. And, uh, <laughs> and, and she said this in a meeting and there were other lawyers there. And one of the lawyers who I would not consider somebody that would be, um, uh, I, well, let's just say I, I thought he was a racist, chauvinist pig. But he said, oh, you'll like Raymond. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I, that, I thought that was a pretty high recommendation coming from him. But at <laughs> any rate, um, she said, and, and then you got here, and you've been really nice. And I said, good, because I don't. <laughs> I was just kind of, that was her perception of me from my, my letters. But she didn't know anybody that worked for me. So I, I've been really fortunate with the people I work for. I, I love my, the people that work for me now. Um, it's rare that I've worked with somebody that I didn't really like. Um, but I also uh, would say that I made some friends. Um, I, there was a, a bad point in my life where I had, there was a lot of stuff going down. My career, my, everything. And I made friends, fortunately, with a group of women. And they were incredibly smart, savvy, active, critical thinkers. And I, I'm, not, I'm not overstating it when I tell you when I became friends with them, they saved my soul. They did. And it's because I was helping them, this is how I met them, in a case, a, a, a Title IX case. And that changed all of our lives, all of our lives. And ultimately for the better, but it was a really dark time for all of us at, at, at that time. And the fact that we went through it together, um, you know, it's 20 years later, and we're still friends. Um, that that was has been incredibly rewarding to me, and it happened because I'm a lawyer. You know, I always love hearing people's response to that question me too. when we've interviewed our our other guests that we've had on. I like all the answers because it's all it, it's not a standard answer. It really varies. True. I mean, in some way, it's obviously tied to the law, but everybody's story is different and they've I don't think anyone's answered with just one answer right no no I think most of us are like in this and this yeah. and this as <laughs> yeah. well and I know that it's so important too that we do have that question and that there has been such varying answers because I know that we do have law school listeners and I was just talking with somebody at school yesterday and she was talking about how as you go through law school and you're kind of in the grind, you can kind of forget why you're wanting to do it in the first place. And I know that that's easy to do because you get focused on other things and just trying to get to the next milestone and whatever's next. But to remember that there's so much more out of that you're going to get out of a career in law. That's not just a paycheck. That's not just the average. I get to help people. You know, there's 
there's benefits to you. You know, you make these relationships that ultimately benefit you for the rest of your life. So there is a lot to it. And I think that's a really good reminder. When I was in law school, uh, one of the women lawyers in town told me it's important that you have friends that are not in the legal profession. And I agree with that. I mean, truthfully, none of the people that I hang out with are lawyers. It's not that I dislike lawyers. It's just, you know, I have another part to my life, sort of, thank goodness. But, you know, because we talk shop all the time. <laughs> but, you know, well, I love my job. Into. <laughs> yeah, I love my right. jobs. That's what we talk about. That's when we have an abode dinner. That's what everybody's talking about, you know. Um, it's just kind of the way it is. It, that's a good sign. I will tell you that when I was in that dark part of my life, I was going to shrink, right? And he told me at one time, because I, I have two populations of clients, and one of them is lawyers. He says, and you are the only lawyer that is one of my patients that actually likes your job. And I went, really? He goes, yeah. And I said, what are they doing it for? Because, you know, I, I love what I do. I, if you don't love what you're doing, uh, find a new, find a new career, you know? Um, he goes, he goes, seriously, he says, you are the only one. They all hate their job. And I thought, wow, that's really sad. They must've got into it for the wrong reason. <laughs> Cause I, I think you know, it's common though. At San Joaquin, you know, the first night they used to have a stand up and talk about why we were there. And I remember there were five or six people said that, you know, they thought they were going to make a lot of money. And I thought, well, you've got some adjustment coming, <laughs> you know, because you can make a, you could, you can make a lot of money. You can make a decent living, but it's not a, it's not an automatic thing. You got to no. work, <laughs> you know, you got to really work. So uh, I think those people may have gotten into it for the wrong reason. And I think we, we've talked about that before of mm -hmm. if you think law school is just a filler or like you're, you know, you're done with your, your undergrad and you're not really sure what you want to do, maybe law school is not the time to figure yeah. that out. Mm -hmm. No. It's just, it's, you don't want to go into law and be miserable. I guess any profession. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I hate imagine. to think somebody went to med school and then hated being a doctor. Mm -hmm. Not to mention right. the student loan debt that would come with that yeah. but you know it feels like very expensive adult babysitting yeah right yeah well there's a lot of things you can do with a law degree you know you, you don't have to do litigation um I when I went to law school I wasn't sure I was going to do litigation and, and truthfully I just kind of fell into it you know it's it's where I got a job it, this this is absolutely true I was working for a criminal defense attorney and um, he got me a job uh, when I was in law school. He got me a job at Prismication's office because he knew that, okay? And it was supposed to be a temporary job. Like they had somebody on maternity leave. And um, they came to me after about a month and said, yeah, we'd kind of like to hire you full time. And I'm like, well, you know, that'd be, that'd be great. I didn't see that coming. And, and I was so lazy that... Um, I'm in my last year of law school, and I didn't even look for a job. I was just 
you know, I was happy working and I'm going to take the bar exam. And so they took me to lunch and said, have you been interviewing? And I'm like, no, I know I, I should. And they said, well, okay, we don't want you to. We want you to stay here. So which was great be because here's what they did to me. So <laughs> they gave me paid time off to study for the bar exam, which oh, I wow. hadn't been planning on doing. Uh, they gave me a bicycle uh, as a graduation present because they all rode bikes and I could have used some physical exercise. And then I, I start working for them and <clears throat> we don't have, uh, I don't have my ticket yet. Um, I passed, but I hadn't been sworn in yet. And they had a group come in of, of citizens on a, an election contest and they said, yeah, we're too busy to do that, but if you'll take Grandma, she can do it. But she doesn't have her ticket yet. She won't get sworn in for another two weeks. And they said yes. So I do this. And it, it, you probably don't know anything about election contests, but they have priority and setting. So I get sworn in on, like, I don't know, December, whatever it was. It was in December. Uh, and then the trial started at the end of January. I did a 10-day court trial, uh, and I hadn't had my ticket 60 days. <laughs> so, um, and then I get done with that, and um, I, and it was um, like covered by the Fresno Bee. So I was way out of my element here. You know, they just kind of threw that baby in the bathwater, deep in. Hey, she can swim. She'll be fine, <laughs> which was great in the sense mm -hmm. that it sh they showed confidence in me and and that helped my career i have to tell you that it really did because all of a sudden these i'm on the front page of fresno b and all the lawyers are reading about me and <laughs> you know i didn't even have my bar number memorized yet so um it was a it was a great experience and then i come back and they say yeah so we're going to give you your first jury trial next month and all my all my classmates are going, what? So I have to tell you that Bob Williams and Bob Perez did that to me. And I, I always say I peaked early in my career because, you know, it's, like, oh, it's all downhill from there. But um, it was a great experience. It was a great experience. And uh, you, that wouldn't happen, I don't know. I would never expect that to happen again. I was just really lucky to have people that had confidence in me and also enough confidence to just tell the clients that this is what we're doing, you know, and it worked. That's amazing getting started that soon on trials. Yeah, I've, you know, it's too stupid to know to be scared, really. <laughs> you know, it's just, right. you know I, I remember going to that first jury trial and thinking, uh-oh, I, I, what am I supposed to, uh, well, I'm trying to remember what I'm supposed to do here. You know, the, the next, you know, procedurally, the next step in something, because uh, nobody went with me to the jury trial. Now, the, the court trial, the first day, Bob Williams went with me, and I called the first witness, and I have her up on the stand, and I'm, I'm questioning her, and she says something that was absolutely critical and she didn't even know she was doing it and I stopped and I went 
So I kind of repeated what she said and put it into the next question. And she said, yes, Baba. And she starts talking. And I hear this noise behind me because I'm standing, you know, and I turn around and Bob's packing up his briefcase and leaving. And I'm like, what? Uh? But I couldn't like say, oh, Judge, I, I need to go check with my boss about why he's leaving. You know, I had to continue doing what I was supposed right. to be doing. And so uh, at the end of the day, I go back to the office and I'm like, what? And he goes, you heard what she said. I saw that you heard what she said and you knew it was important. You didn't need me. And so he left. That was brave. <laughs> that was brave. It, it all worked out. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was pretty stunning. So I, I believe in throwing the baby into the deep end of the pool as a result. And you can ask some of my associates because I've done that to them. Hey, the way you learn to swim is to yep. get in the pool. You know, <laughs> there you go. There's and no other way. Yeah, you have to, you have to do it. You have to do it. Um, I, it might've been nice if I'd ever second chaired, but, um, I just had a really steep learning curve there, you know? I, I think the whole first couple of years as an attorney is a very steep learning curve. Mm, I, mine was a little compressed. Yours <laughs> was, <laughs> definitely. Um, you know, and I did, I want to say I did like. 10 trials in two years. Oh my gosh. That's a lot. Yeah. They were little, you know, they weren't, you know, big like deal trials, 10 but... trials in two years. Yeah. Um, it was, it was really, uh, I didn't at the time, I didn't realize really that that mm -hmm. was a lot. And it's, it's just kind of the way it worked. Wouldn't happen now. Trials are too expensive. You know, they sent me to the first trial right. and I had no expert. Okay. So I'm like, um, fortunately, I'm like, so your leg was in a plaster cast. Yeah. Okay. Because I couldn't, he couldn't say his leg was broken because he's not, you know, but right. everybody in the jury box knew, oh, that means he had a broken leg, you know? So right. I just had to find a way yeah. to do it. Yeah. The small ones you can't afford anymore to take them to trial. Yeah. You know? And really he told an expert, he told me, he said, um, as long as you beat the arbitration award, because back then we did these judicial arbitrations and uh, I did, I, be I, I beat the, so everything was good, you know? And then he said to me, and this was a complete mystery. It took me quite a while to figure out. He goes, it's okay. We got the comp case. So we're never, we're not going to lose money. And I went, I didn't really understand that at the time. Now mm -hmm. it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. But yeah, he said some mysterious things were said to me. <laughs> so was it a system where you did the judicial arbitration where, you know, for our listeners, it's the judge decides, essentially? No, um, Fr and Fresno County had a, no, Fresno County had a, a program where um, you would go to this arbitration and, and a local lawyer would act as the arbitrator and oh, okay. they would make a decision and then you could de novo it but if you de novo did and didn't beat the award then it was kind of like a 998 situation where you'd lose your cost or something i okay you know it was a long time ago i don't remember the technicalities anymore but okay they stopped doing that within two or three years of that but it um 
that case had been arbitrated and, and the I think the plaintiff had rejected the arbitration award and then we it was important for us to beat it. And we did, you know. So not a bad way. No. God, I can't believe I remember that after all these years. <laughs> okay. So I saw that you argued at the California Supreme Court very early on. That was the election contest. So what happened was okay. an election contest is a very different procedure and it gets priority setting. So we get this and because it's a local election, it involved the school district and the feeder schools. Um, no local judge wants to hear it because, you know. And so the Judicial Council assigned the recently retired presiding judge from the Fifth District Court of, Court of Appeal, Justice Franson, not the current Justice Franson, mm -hmm. his dad. And so Justice Franson sat as the trial judge. And uh, we did this trial for 10 days and then he's writing the decision and he, I think it took him two weeks, he came out with the decision and the respondents appealed. And um, I'm looking up what happens if they appeal an election contest because the rules are different. Than it. And I get this phone call from Justice Franson. He says, um, Ms. Church, you are going to appeal. Uh, you you are going to contest the appeal, aren't you? I said, yes, yes, we are. He says, okay, fine. Just hangs up. Okay, fine. So this is a very expedited thing. The, the decision on the uh, petition was reached in March. And in April, I'm standing in front of the Fifth District Court of Appeal arguing the appeal. That is it's that crazy. fast. It's, it's crazy. How? Well, actually, we had one hearing, then we had another one in, in June. And they reversed Justice Franchin's decision. And then he calls me up and says, you're, you're going to petition to appeal that, right? And I said, yes, sir. Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> so, so then I do. And because it's a, an election contest, the California Supreme Court virtually has to grant hearing. Okay, I've been a lawyer six months. <clears throat> yeah, mm-hmm. This was normal. Uh, this was back when I could actually write a legal brief because, you know, I couldn't do that now to save my soul. But um, we ended up in oral arguments in front of the California Supreme Court I think in February of the following year, at a time when it would normally take three years to right. get a hearing, you know. So, yeah, um, so I go up there and completely unprepared for the experience, I have to say. I mean, I knew my law, you know, I knew all that. But right. I get there and I'd never been in the California Supreme Court chambers before and it's this huge it's up in Sacramento it's this huge u-shaped bench so that when you're standing at the podium it's like you can't even see the justices in your peripheral vision out here because it's it's so big and I'm so nervous 
that I'm like, my mouth is dry and my feet are sweating. I felt I felt like I was standing in a puddle. I kept wanting to step out of my shoes because they were so wet. You know, it was, and they, they, Justice Werdegaard asked me a question and her accent was so heavy. I wanted to say, can I have that in English? Which of course I couldn't do, but then I'm standing there. I can't even, I don't even understand what she's asked me. I'm thinking, what was that? That she just, so I just kind of make up an answer, you know, it was awful. It was absolutely awful, but, but. But I won, so okay, <laughs> you know. That's good. It, trust me, it wasn't my oral argument skills. It was it was the record on appeal and what Justice Franson had written. You know, they could support, and I would say that the public policy between behind what he was saying, uh, yeah. particularly given the last I don't know election um, problems that we've had, um, mm-hmm. uh, was really important. You know the the uh, security of the ballots was a big issue, and you know eighteen hundred ballots had gone missing, and they'd all gone to one address. So it was kind of uh, yeah, it was it was, it was kind of a little suspicious. Yeah, happened to be a campaign headquarters. You know, happened to be a campaign headquarters. Which my argument was the rules prohibit ballots being absentee ballots being sent to a campaign headquarters and the court agreed with that 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 was you know evidence of suspicious activity or you know whatever but yeah so it was it was a very interesting start to a career which uh, you know uh, Mm -hmm. like I did like two more election contests ever but so I, I got into litigation not in the normal it wasn't planned I just stumbled into it. I I started, I think the first thing I signed as an attorney was a court of appeal brief I had written. Cause I, when I clerked, I had done the summary judgment. Another attorney argued it. We lost. Um, and so my boss was like, all right, great. Start working on this. So as soon as I got my bar licensed, I was able to sign it, you know, a few weeks Felt later. Good. And I think I argued it as like a six month attorney. And I want to say I maybe had gone to court one or two times on like other little hearings and probably CMCs where no, not even close to what a court of appeal arguments like. Um, but yeah, I got thrown in too. Like, <laughs> All right. You, you get pushed in, in our firm. If you write it, you're arguing it. And I remember I, sh- I showed up <clears throat> For the Oregon argument, and it happened to be the day that Bernie Whitkin was actually in Fresno for the Whitkin luncheon, mm-hmm. and um, so he was in the courtroom to listen. No pressure, oh, no pressure. No. Yeah, and so um, Justice Ardice, who'd been my evidence instructor, was on the panel, and uh, he he asked me a question about something, and I remember I said, "Well." kind of between a rock and, and the proverbial hard place here. And then I went and he started laughing. He literally put his head down on the desk. He was laughing so hard. And I'm like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, that's what, that's, that's what I remember. That's all I remember about that hearing. And when I left the courtroom, Bernie went and came up and talked to me and he says, this is all they've been talking about all day long. 
because he'd been in the back. And I went, oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I understood. It was a very public case, you know. Right. And uh, so, you know, but uh, that's all he said to me, you know, and he wouldn't know me if he'd ran into me the street the next day, but it mm-hmm. was, I, I do remember that. I'm like, oh, great. <sighs> <You know? laughs> I Let's just say that I I know that when I was young, I, other people thought I had a lot of confidence. Well, that was shape shifting, trust me, because I was just like, oh, you know, I was just, oh, I was inside, saying. I'm just a mess. I'm just like, yep. oh, how did I get yep. here? What's going on? On the other hand, I did know that I knew what I was talking about. Right. I, I was just like, yeah, but how did this happen? How, you know, it was, it was, it was a mystery. <laughs> it was fun. In retrospect. Yeah, I had a, yep. I had a lot of nerves. And I'm like, this should should I really be arguing this? I'm the baby attorney. Like, I don't know. Pretty much every other attorney in our office has worked on this. Like, I'm arguing it. Okay. But then I was just bummed that the court didn't they we lost the appeal. Uh-huh. Um, but I thought I had a really good art art. The whole case was whether uh 1714D regarding the provision of alcohol to minors. Um, so for our listeners in California or from beyond, homeowners are only liable if the alcohol is provided when you're in a residence, it's supposed to be like your residence. So in our case, the alcohol was provided on a houseboat. So I had this whole argument that the houseboat counts as a residence. And so we had a real great discussion with the court of appeal and they had lots of questions of like, would you extend it to a hotel room? Would you extend it to a tent if someone's sleeping outside? And so we had a, a great, I got peppered wow. with questions. And so it was really fun. And I'm like, maybe there's hope that we could have this opinion <laughs> that, you know, interpret 1714D. And then they're like, yeah, denied on causation. Come on. But it was fun. It was really fun. The truth is, when you did that brief, you were more interested in it than any other lawyer in the building would have been. Yeah. That's the good thing about oh, being a young lawyer because yeah. you're just so willing to pour all this work into oh, it. I, now I get a brief and I'm so like, oh, my time. God, it's 25 pages. I don't want to read that. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. No, I spent so much. Like that was like my only assignment for a long time. So I went so deep on trying to figure out how to beat that summary judgment and like looking up maritime codes and like all of this stuff. And I mean, we didn't work but I learned lots of stuff yeah yeah I you know I I can't I know it happened at some point in my career where when I started I was fine doing depositions and oral arguments or writing briefs I was a good brief writer at some point in time that uh, responsibility left my desk and you know, I hardly ever write anything legal now because my job is to do all the stuff on my feet, right? I, I kind of regret that. Um, I was once told that there aren't a lot of lawyers that can do both the trial part and the legal research part. That They tend to be two different breeds. And that may be true. 
I didn't think it was true with respect to me, but what happened is the job duties narrowed down and, you know, I, I had to give up the legal stuff, the legal writing to people who that really was their skill set, you know, but there's a part of me that regrets that because there's a, there's a thing, you know, when you get it written well and you get a little jazz out of that, mm-hmm. you know, it's true. Because if we were going to law school, we were smart people, you know, and we had good, we had good writing skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a little competitive to get it written well, you know. Mm-hmm. And to be a traveler, you have to be a little competitive, so. Law school certainly prepares you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. I guess. I, you know, I, I never felt competitive at law school. I just, you know, trying to get the stuff. I was, you know, I'm, I'm the slow one. I'm the, like, too dumb to know not to keep going. I just one foot in front of the other and just keep going. That's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Persistent. Not out of skill, but out of, you know, a lack of imagination for there to be another path. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm just stubborn. I'll just keep, keep going. Like I hated one of my majors first semester of college, but you know, I realized I put that first semester in, so I should just go forward with it. (laughs) <laughs> like I probably made, had two major classes looking back. I'm like, I totally could have switched, but I'm like, no, like I want this degree for law school. So as much as we hate it, we're just going to keep going. But yeah, like, I don't I just me being stubborn. I've had people tell me that I was really goal oriented and I'm like, really? I don't know. Where do you get that? Well, <laughs> from outside my bubble, you know, um, mm-hmm. I was working full time and and going to school at night and then law school at night. And so people saw that as really goal oriented. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I just really didn't have anything else to do with my evenings. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. that, really. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm kind of cheap, so I didn't want a student loan. And I, you know, I guess I, my parents said, you get out of high school, you should go to college or work. And we frankly, we prefer you do both. You know, so that's what I did. Worked out really well, that part. Yeah. Not having a student loan. <laughs> that so. would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know. So what advice would you give to young women who are considering a career in law? Um... Do it for the right reason. Don't, like like I said, I don't think um, doing it for the money is the right reason because that's not a guarantee. Um, Know your strengths and your weaknesses, but if you, when you know you have these weaknesses, the good news is you can improve on that. You can change that. Most of our weaknesses are things that we can learn to do better or learn to do differently. Um, do not portray your sense of what is right. Um, it, you don't have to know already. You know, I've, I've already said you learn to tell people no or, or to tell them we're going to do it 
we're, we are going to do this or we're not going to do that. You will learn different ways to do that. It doesn't always have to be, it can be done in a graceful way, okay? Um, my old uh, partner, Jim Emerson, used to say, always give people a graceful exit. Um, and that's true. That's true. And uh, it took me a little while to figure out how to do that. Um, but you need to feel good about yourself by not betraying who you are and what you what you stand for. And, and, and like I said early on, that's not always easy. But don't sell your soul to the devil for this job. Um, guard your time. It's valuable. Um, you know, I, I was, people thought I was a workaholic and, and, and maybe I was, but you have to know when you need time to recharge and you, you need to say, no, I, I'm not going to be on that committee or I'm not going to do that project or I'm not because you need to take care of yourself. Um, <clears throat> there's probably a lot of people depending upon you, not just yourself. And <clears throat> I tell this to people, plaintiffs usually, when they talk about not um, taking care of themselves. I say, Do you, who is the most important person in a rescue? It's the rescuer. Because if the rescuer doesn't make it, neither do the victims. You have to take care of yourself. Um, I and I, I will tell you, I wasn't always good ab ab about this, but um, learn to value your time, and be learn to say no to some things. Um, because I, I'm I'm an introvert. People find that surprising, but. Um, I'm not shy, but I, when I'm around a lot of people, it that's energy training for me. I need alone time to recharge. If you're an extrovert and you need to recharge, you know, you go go to lunch with your friends, soak up. You know, I was, you know, in my household, I'm the introvert and the other person's the extrovert. And I always say, you just suck the life out of everybody, you know, because he, he has to get, he has to get his energy from other people. I'm like, ah, you know, life sucker. But, um, <laughs> if that's, if that's how you get your energy, then, then make sure you get it that way, you know, um, because this job can, can be really draining and you need to be you know, I, I sit on my butt in a chair in front of a computer all day, right? And at the end of the day, I'm fried, fried. And I think, you know, nobody understands how come I'm, but my brain is tired and I get hangry and not pleasant to be around. <laughs> and, and so you want to be good to the people that you love. So you have to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the thing about this job that um, I get really in-depth into my job and I get 
I bark at people when they interrupt me or, you know, interfere with what I'm thinking about. And I think a lot of lawyers are that way. So, yeah, guard your time. And um, find a, a mentor that you can go to when things are dicey. Somebody that you trust that can give you good advice. Um, there's, there's one thing about that I will say. Um, I, and I learned this from one of those women that became one of my friends. She said, you know, when you're, when you're having a really hard time with something, you know, you depression or something's really bad. She says, you can wear your family and friends out and they are managing you. She says, um, she goes, this is the reason why I see a psychologist, because they're a professional, and I'm paying them. I'm not going to wear them out, and they will give me good advice, not what I want to hear, or they're not managing me that way. And that was good advice, because I did, I did see a psychologist because, and I, because, you know, if you tell your family something, they never forget, right? And sometimes they just don't need to know stuff. <laughs> I'm talking about my parents, you know, not, not, yeah. not a spouse, but, um, so a, a mentor is kind of like that in the sense of, okay, you've got this maybe career decision to make, or it could be, gee, you know, what's the best strategy for handling this obnoxious lawyer? I, I don't know, whatever it is, um, get, ha get a mentor that you can trust to talk to because sometimes, you know, it's about your firm and you need to be able to trust them. Um, another part about valuing your time. <clears throat> the men are never uh, shy of saying, yeah, I need to take a break. You know, you're in a deposition and they're like, yeah, I need to take, men are not shy about this. And I, no. I noticed that right off. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to worry about that either anymore. I'm not. I remember I had this case, there were like, I don't know, 10 lawyers in it. And there was this one older woman, attorney in this case. And at one point I called the bathroom break during the depot. I'm like, yeah, we got to take bath. And that coffee's hit the end of the pipes. It's time to go. And we go to the bathroom. And she says, I'm so glad you said that because I've been needing to pee for the longest time. And I'm like, Mary, how long have you been doing this? I'm like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> just read her the riot act. Because I'm like, they don't think a thing of it. They're no. comforted. They're all about their own comfort. You know, get over that. <laughs> so. And they'll just announce, like, I need to pee. <laughs> it's not even like a, I need a break or anything. Nope. It's just that I have to pee now. I need to go. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's. Yeah, that's, that's, that's something that I, I, I don't know. Maybe now it's not that way, but it was. When I was young, the women lawyers would just sit there and they'd be all polite and nice. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Because the guys, they don't care. You tell them I want to take a break, they'll I say, okay. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time to not be like, um, I, I think, can, can we take a break now? They're like, no, okay, I need a break. So yeah. it, it took a while for me to figure that out. Yeah. But agreed, why sit there uncomfortable? Exactly. <laughs> You know, you guys had asked me um, 
before this about had I ever had an experience where I was somebody asked me if I was the secretary or you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, once, and it was funny because I was a young lawyer. I was what I call a baby lawyer, first year, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and I walked into a defense firm's uh, reception area, and the receptionist asked me if I was the court reporter. And I started to say no, and this voice behind me, how clueless I didn't even realize there was somebody standing behind me. This guy says, no, this is Raymond Church. She's a lawyer. I'm the court reporter. And I turned around with Jerry Howell. He's, Jerry's a great big guy. He was a court reporter. And I, I remember thinking, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who, how he knew who I was. But he corrected her, you know. that There mm-hmm. was that one time. The, the other time, this used to be a regular problem back in the early 90s with Judge Broadman. In oh. down in Tulare County. And I'd heard him do this a number of times where we were making this making a phone appearance and a, a woman would say, Yeah, you know, I'm and he'd say, Are you really the lawyer or are you the secretary? And I was like, if he ever does that to me, I'm gonna go off on this guy. I don't care if he is a judge, but because who who had ever heard a secretary get on the phone with a court, you know, on a court call? Right. I'm like, yeah. So one day, you know, they call my case and I, and he starts to say it to me and I'm, I'm, and what happens? Russ Cook pipes in. No, no, your honor. She's the, she's, she's, she's the defense. She's been handling this case. She's the lawyer. And I'm like, you know, I did not need you talking up for me, Russ. (laughs) But it was was done. done. That's right. So, um, like. I think it was 2007. I walked into the office where I was working, and there was Judge Broadman talking to Scott Van Wagenen. And I look at him, and I'm like, I'm just going to go over here, you know, because I'd had several people tell me I needed to use Judge Broadman as a media. And I'm like, yeah, that's not happening. (laughs) And uh, Scott says, Rayma, come over here. I'm like, uh. so I get, you know, I get drug over there, and and Broadman says to me, "So tell me what I did." I said, "No." He goes, "No, no. I clearly did something. What was it?" So, so I, so I told him, you know, I, I did because I'm like, rawr, rawr. he goes, because you know they had to put him through a program to teach him not to do that kind of thing, and then he became a mediator, became an effective mediator, but. It was like, I couldn't believe that nobody said anything to him to begin with about, when have you ever had a secretary that, you know, and I, and I think, I'm sitting here thinking, if you ever had a secretary do it, it's because the man that she was working for asked her to do it, meaning mm-hmm. sit on the phone until his case got called, right? right? Not yeah. the woman. I'm just like, nah, you know, mm-hmm. so anyway, that, those are my experiences with not being a, a man court, <laughs> in a court one time. And I don't know if they just thought I wasn't an attorney, but it was down in Kings County and I appeared for a hearing and 
I mean, I was paying attention throughout the court because it was criminal court and like we never see criminal court. I'm like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And it went over an hour and a half into civil time. And so I don't want to sit and play on my phone. So I was watching. So they finally call my case and I get up and I state my appearance. And they're like, great. What's your bar number? Really? I'm like, I've never been asked. And I'm like, I rattle it off. And they're like, oh, okay. Like, I think it was like a test. I'm like, do you think I'm a baby attorney that either doesn't have a bar number? Like, what? Okay. Like, I've never been asked for a bar number before at a hearing. I, uh, for a short period of time, I, I worked in Missouri. And so I had to take the Missouri bar. Totally different experience than California. And so I had a baby bar number, right? And I was actually helping a young lawyer with his first trial. And so I, I like to help prep him. And I said, you know, I'll do jury selection because I don't think you should do it if you've never even seen it. And, uh, and their jury selection is a little different than California, I'll tell you that. But at any rate, I'd had the experience with this judge where he would not look at me. I'd been in his courtroom and he would not look at me. I'd had some really bad experiences. You know, Missouri's not really part of the United States, just FYI. And um, I, it, was, it was very shocking to me. And uh, it was when I realized that I was used to having a reputation when I showed up in court and here I had none. So, anyway, so we start this trial and I do jury selection and um, there was a little incident during jury selection where one of the potential jurors was a local radio uh, host of, uh, well, let's just say he he would be one of the people that showed up at the Capitol on January 6th. Let me just describe it that way okay and anyway so I when he said he was a radio broadcast I asked him a question about it and he goes you mean you haven't listened to my show and I'm like no he goes oh what do you watch NPR and I said well yeah I didn't realize it was a felony you know <laughs> so I mean I actually said that to him right and uh so then the judge cuts in and starts asking him some questions. And I'm thinking, well, this is a little different. Because I could tell the judge was just like after this guy. Anyway, so it turned out the guy hadn't given his real name. And the judge knew what his real name was. And he really wasn't a citizen. He was from Canada. And it was just a whole big, you know, brouhaha. Anyway, sideshow to this jury selection. But when we took a break, the judge says... He goes, uh, Mr. Chicken, come up here. I want to ask you a question, which, you know, a judge would never do without, in California, without the other attorney being there, right? And I'm like, right. okay. He says, uh, where are you from? Because this is not your first rodeo. Because I had a baby bar number, and I'm, I'm doing this jury selection, and he, he's like, uh, this is not your first rodeo. And I said, California. He goes, oh, okay. And from then on, I was golden with this guy. It was weird. And then he told the other judges. So then after that, I was good. But initially, it was, I was persona non grata there. Interesting experience. 
you don't, when you get to be my age, you don't realize how much your reputation affects how you get treated by court personnel and, and whatnot. I was just used to showing up and being treated decently, right? And then right. all of a sudden, that didn't happen. And I was like, eh, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of goes back to the importance of being a good person and mm -hmm. remembering the value of your reputation because not having that reputation anymore, whether it be because you've burned all your bridges or because you yeah. go somewhere new, that really does have an impact. Yeah, it does. And it was funny, eventually, uh, there were a couple of attorneys there that I got to know, and I told them, I said, mm, this is not a friendly town. They're like, really? Why is that? And I said, well, if you're not local, hmm. you know? And so I, I told them what some of my experiences were, and they were, like, kind of clueless about it. For, for one thing, they were local, and for another thing, they were men, you know? It was very different. I told them about my experience. I'd showed up, and it was very clear this lawyer. Uh, I showed up. I was interviewing for a job, and uh, here there was the female head of their statewide office, and there was this guy that was in charge of the local office, and he wanted me out of that room before I even got there. And I picked up on it right away. I thought, oh, this isn't happening because he looks at me and I'm competition. I have too much experience. I'm a member of a BOTA. He's not. You know, it was, it was like done. It was done. And so when I told this other attorney that, he goes, yeah, that guy's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> you dodged a bullet there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. At least I read the room that time. Most of the time I don't read the room. I'm not really perceptive that way with those some interviews though are just so awkward where yeah. it's I mean I got thrown into some on OCI and it was a certain number of firms pick you and then the rest are randomized mm -hmm. and so it's all big firms and it's not what I want to do but I was like okay it was still a second year well barely hadn't even started classes and I get into one interview and they're like, oh, okay, like you, you just, I transferred law school. So they're like, you just transferred. So like, what do you do for fun? Like nothing about law. They're going to my interests and asking me about my interests that are at like the little bottom part of my resume. And I'm like, this is going nowhere. But they won't stop the interview. And it's not like I'm <laughs> probably now I just be like, look, I realize this isn't going like, why don't we just call it quits and, you know, each have mm -hmm. a little bit more of a break. But I mean, I start trying to ask questions and then the guy would talk because he wanted to hear himself talk. Um, and finally, I'm like, okay, do you have any more questions for me? Like hoping like, please just ask me something substantive where it's not just about wakeboarding. Um, and finally, at the end, the, I think it was a female associate. She's like, okay, I have, I have a question for you. And I was like, oh, great. Finally, thank you. She's like, so you lived in, your uh, resume says that you lived in Daly City. I'm like, yeah, that was my old address. Like, I just got my apartment either, like, the day I started interviews or the day before. And she goes, great. Do you know where this road is? Because that's where, like, I used to live. 
I'm like, yeah, it's right. She's like, it's right up the road from where you live. Like, it's up by the Little Caesars. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I know, I know where that is. Cool. Thanks. Can I leave now? Like, yeah, that goes back to, like, guarding your time. Like, other people's time is also valuable. So, like, the best thing I could have done was be like, look, this isn't going to go anywhere. I want you to have a little bit of free time before your next interview. Just, oh, yeah, yeah, you no. know, don't, don't waste oh, no. But time. she's good at thinking of stuff like that, see? Yeah, no. <laughs> OCI had so many like another one was like yeah when you come to our firm they take you out to lunch like every day and you're gonna gain like 15 pounds and I'm like how is this an attractive making you want your job I'm like this doesn't sound like a good healthy environment but thank you on the other side of the table uh I hadn't done a lot of interviews when at a certain point, we interviewed, we were interviewing for a, like a first year associate, you know, a, a baby lawyer. And this guy came in and I'm like, okay, he needs to stop moving. And, and did anybody tell him he was interviewing for a job? Because I don't think like, I, it might've qualified as a suit, but it was moving around so much. And, and he got this drink, this glass of water, and he's moving it all over the table. And he's slouched in his chair like this. And, and I'm like, there's something wrong with this guy. <laughs> this is just me in my head. I'm having this little conversation. And right. one of my partners, who was not the soul of discretion, uh, was there with me. And I... I'm surprised he just didn't get up and walk out because he was that. You know, it was the most disturbing interview I've ever been in because the guy was so clueless as to how he was presenting. I'm like, okay, so maybe you shouldn't have taken whatever it was you took this morning before you uh -huh. came in for this interview because, yeah. wow, it was just, you so see fun. bizarre beh behavior. You oh, know? yeah. I, I went back and did OCI for our firm and... So they just sent me, and obviously it's weird sitting alone in that like gigantic room all day. Um, and I remember one one person couldn't really look off of her resume, so it was just a lot of like staring at the top of her head, and she was really really quiet, and she could barely talk. And I'm like, all right, we do litigation, and like a lot of the <laughs> times you are going to be the only young attorney and probably the only female attorney in a room of generally older men yeah. that aren't going to listen to you. Like you're going to have to have a voice to be able to speak up. And I was like, yeah, this isn't, this is not going to work. I, I will tell no, you, I had a, not at all. I, I, I went, as is my custom, if I have an associate that's in the first trial, I went, I did jury selection. Oh, I told her, I said, I'm, all I'm going to do is jury selection because you've never seen it. So, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I'll just give you clues on the rest of it. And uh, I, I, I probably knew at one point, but I didn't remember it, that she had a theater background. But I didn't know that. Oh. So we're, so I did jury selection and then she stands up to do opening. And she just blew me away. She was really good. You know, and I went, I said, so I, I said something to her about, we were out of town, so that was part of it. You know, mm -hmm. we, 
have dinner together and lunch together, poor thing. I felt sorry for being stuck with me. But um, I said, yeah, you, you were really comfortable there. I was, that was good. She goes, oh, yeah, I've done so much, you know, community theater. And I went, oh, the, yeah, that would explain that level of comfort. Yeah. Because she was clearly very comfortable in front of a jury. Is it Elizabeth? No, it wasn't Elizabeth. Oh, okay. I was, was going to say, Elizabeth was great in uh, when we did the Civil Advocacy Institute. So I haven't seen her in front of a jury, but uh, Got when it. She, okay. I remember her interview. And she's very erect, very calm, very self-possessed, mm -hmm. lots of eye contact, which Jim Emerson was all about the eye contact. I still remember that. I still remember, you know, like what she was wearing, how she looked. And uh, I was like, I mean, there was like no question. This, it was her, right? People, I mean, it was like cut and print. We've met, we've met the person, you know. So that was like the best thing that happened to me as a managing partner ever was Elizabeth showing up because she's mm -hmm. just, and she is light years ahead of my development. When me at eight years, she's like twice the lawyer I was. I mean, she's just, of course, she knows she likes to negotiate, which I, I can negotiate at. I'm much better at it. They don't tell you when you're in law school that you need to be able to do math and percentages. You know, uh -huh. a lot of us became lawyers because we couldn't become accountants because we suck at math. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most lawyers will tell you that. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's not true. We yeah. do a lot of math, actually. Yeah, don't do what it. we do. because yeah. yeah, it's constant. You do math. a lot of math. But mm -hmm. she likes to negotiate. Which right there, right there, she's got a skill set I never had. So, you know, it's just been, it's just been phenomenal to watch her develop. And, and you know, We'll be talking about a case, and she'll say, "Yeah, but blah blah blah," and I'll go, "Oh yeah, that." I'm thinking, man, I would never have thought of that. She always makes me feel stupid, you know. <laughs> but then she'll, once in a while, she'll throw me a bone. She'll come in and she'll go, "Well, you know, what do you think we should we do this or this?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, okay. Uh, I would do this, you know, because the truth is." It's true for everybody. There's stuff I can do that she can't. You know, right. I can get away with it. She can't. You know, right. she can get away with stuff that I can't get away with. You know, so mm -hmm. sometimes I, I have to do something because it's more effective if I do it. And it'll take me oh, three right. minutes, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So there's that. But yeah, if I can send her, I, I sent her to a mediation. I was gone last month. I sent her to a mediation. It's like, yeah, it's kind of better if you do it anyway, because, you know, you're better. <laughs> I'd have her do all those. I'm like, oh. right. Because she just, and she, she likes the persistence of it. Whereas I'm like, yeah, okay, here's my money. Take it or leave it. I'm done. You know, that's, yeah, that's how it's I feel about it. That's not how it works. You know? Right. Everybody has different skills. Yeah, I didn't have that one. Mm -hmm. I had to, I had to, I had to learn it. I had to work at it. Okay. And now I, I can remember when I was a young lawyer, we'd ha having a meeting and 
Emerson and some of the other attorneys be talking, well, you know, so-and-so said this, and then they said that, and you know, it means this. And I'm thinking, it does? I need to write that down. I didn't know that. That's, you know, there's these, it's code, right? I didn't know any of the code. Right. <laughs> I knew none of the code. I had to learn that over a long time. You know, other things I took to, like a duck to water, not negotiating. It takes practice. Skill. It's a good skill to have. You know, you could get yeah, a better deal at a car, too. <laughs> right. Women don't like to buy cars. No. I let my husband negotiate it. I was like, yeah, whatever. When I got my car, I was, so I, my background is in communication. I yeah. got my master's in communication. And I taught public speaking. And my favorite lesson to teach was on persuasion because that's what my master's research looked at, courtroom persuasion. And when I went to buy my car, I, it was in the middle of COVID. And so there was you know, a car short. No cars. No cars. <laughs> and uh, worst time to buy. Uh, and I'm there and the car salesman that was working with me were on a test drive. And I was like, look, I don't want to be persuaded. Okay. I teach persuasion. I don't want to be persuaded. I want you to just tell me how it is. And he reveals to me that this was his first time actually on a test drive with somebody oh. because he had just been moved to another department to sales. And so I was like, okay, here are the books that you're going to read. You're going to read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And you're going to learn that people want to buy. They don't want to be sold. Okay? That's what you're going to do. And, and, and we did it. And I got my car. But important lesson, right? <laughs> I, and the last time I bought a car, I used a, a, an auto broker. And it was great experience. And I'll never do it another way. I remember um, it was like the week before I started law school. I went to a car dealer because I was it was time to buy a car. And I went, I went to several lots. And I'm not kidding you, on every single lot, this was the first question. What color car do you want? I'm like, color? I'm like, I actually would start saying to them, I don't care what color it is, as long as it's not black, because we do live in Fresno. You know? And I could not believe, this is like, this is 1987. And then when I finally get down to, I pick the car I want. I told them, I said, I'm not going to buy the car today. I said, I know this makes you guys all nervous, but I'm not doing it today because other than buying a house, a car's the most major purchase you make. And I need a cooling off period. This just drove them crazy. Well, then I come back and, you know, they have the sales manager or whatever the guy is coming to talk to me and he says well you know your husband has to come in here and sign this and I went do you see him here <laughs> yeah I said do you do you see right. him here I said have I said anything about a husband uh he goes oh no it's required by law and I said uh yeah no it's not and I said and if you're going to require my husband, you're going to lose a sale because it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Magically, I got the car without a right. husband. Right. <laughs> Go figure. That. And I'm like, what was that? Oh, yeah. I would have walked away. I would have been like, oh, well, sorry about that. So I was just like, husband. I couldn't what? believe it. And the the salesman was some young puppy. So, you know, it was... It was all about with the manager. I'm just like, because at yeah. that point, you know, I didn't go to law school. But I was in my 30s, you know, because I took the scenic route, right? So 
I, I knew a thing or two before I got there. Yeah. When we were looking for houses, so my husband, we weren't married yet, but still, so we're like walking in and they're like, oh, asking him like, what, what do you do for work? And like, you know, kind of trying to like size us up to see if we would qualify for the house. And they turned to me and they're like, oh, like, do you work at all? Like, mm. <laughs> yep, I'm an attorney. And they're like, oh, I'm like, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, I, like, I will tell you, I don't tell people I'm a lawyer. I never tell people that. Oh, I don't either. And Doug always gets on me, right? Because I'm like, he's like, no, you just need to tell them you're an attorney. I was like, sometimes I don't want people to know. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh, I, like if people ask me, like, oh, I work at a law firm. Like, I mean, it depends on the situation, yeah. but um, I don't want to immediately jump into it. Like, I never like, tell I them. Don't wanna, I Tom don't tells them, it. and then I'm like, uh, yep. you know, it doesn't matter that I'm a lawyer. It's, you know, we're Great. riding bikes. Hello, you know, or whatever. When I was uh, in college, people would say, oh, you know, what do you do? And I would say, I work downtown because I, I mm -hmm. worked for an attorney downtown. And that's all. And, you know, um, in 10 years, only one person ever said, well, yeah, but what do you do? And it, it's funny because was a woman in a in a class that I had at Fresno State who I, I didn't know her name. I she had had a couple classes with me over the course of the years, but I didn't know who she was. And I said, "Oh, I I work for a law firm." And she was like, "You well, you never told me that." And I'm like, "I don't I don't even talk to you. Why would I tell you that?" I mean, you know. The funny here was the funny part about it was I had shown up to first night of a U.S. history some basic class, and I'd shown up and I sat down and she came in and sat down and there were two people there that she knew from high school or something, and they were talking and she was telling them how this friend of theirs and her that they were going to go to law school and he was going to become a prosecutor and she was going to be doing something else. And I thought, okay, so these people really need this civics class because you're not in a law office and be a prosecutor. That's, that's right. not right. how this works. Yep. But I've just kept my face forward and I didn't, I didn't react to the conversation, although in my head I'm thinking, okay, you guys are idiots, but all right, mm -hmm. fine, whatever. So I show up to take the LSAT, okay? And she's there. And she, again, with the, you didn't tell me you were gonna go to law school. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I, um, you didn't you ask? And, and I'm like, I, yeah, I, I was like shocked by this. I was just like, who are you? You know, it was a very weird thing. She did ultimately become a lawyer, not highly successful. A fact that didn't shock me, <laughs> but, right, you know, right. but I was just still like that whole, I, she was a person, I think she had a preconceived, preconceived notion about what being a lawyer was and how mm -hmm. that was going to affect her life. And I was like, I'd already been working in law offices way too long already. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. No. 
I mean, I I found working. I worked for a criminal defense lawyer, and I I would never wanted to do criminal law, but it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. When I was in college, it was more interesting than school, certainly. But then when I got to law school, I said, okay, so we really have to start paying attention to school now because this is like for real, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and and work is less important. You know, kind of had to have a little chat with myself about that because the, the criminal defense work was interesting, but I didn't want to do it. So, and then that, and thus I got, you know, put over to this, he recommended me over to this, to Perez's office and, and that changed the course of my life. Who knows what I would have become, even if I'd gone to law school. I might have become a transactional lawyer. I would really have been bad at that, but you know, yeah, who knows what would have happened? And little things change your life. To be a strong woman <clears throat> means you have to have self-confidence. It also means, well, I think a sub part of it is there's a special place in hell for women who don't help women. That's my subtext. Yes, that. yes. Okay. That's a quote from, I believe it was Barbara Jordan of Texas. But um, you, you do need to reach out uh, to help people when they, when they need to be, when you think they need your help. I mean, maybe it's not welcome sometimes, but um, I do think for most of, most of us, it's harder to do it for ourselves. Because I think we were trained culturally that, um, you know, that's like boasting or there's a negative connotation to standing up for yourself. Um, that, that needs to go away. That needs to go away. Um, I've been really fortunate in my life. You know, I've never been hungry. I've never been homeless. I've never been truly broke. Um, there are people that do suffer those situations through no fault of their own. Um, and our profession can help those people in, in a lot of circumstances. We are not the panacea for everything. Uh, but we see a lot of uh, tragedy and unfortunate situations. We see people get taken advantage of. Um, and we see people mistreated even within our own profession. Um, and so to be strong, I think we, we stand up to that. Um, sometimes in little ways and sometimes in big ways. That's what I think being a, a strong woman is. <laughs>